Today's show is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill, sharing nothing but the best in whole grain nutrition and committed to their mission of good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Oh yeah, I like to start it off with a little giggle. <laughs> That's what makes it so fun. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I am your host, Katie Keeper, and you are listening to the Heritage Radio Network. Um, I have a fantastic guest for you today. Um, his name is Jeff Trepishian. Trepishian? Yes, Jeff Tripishian. I only know him as Trip, so that's why I'm stumbling, tripping over his name. Um, he will be joining us from Nyman Ranch. Um, we're going to be talking about uh, something new and different about Nyman Ranch. But before that, we're going to talk a little bit about joys and sorrows. And actually, these are not really joys or sorrows. No, they are sorrows. They're really sorrows. I'm sorry. They are. They're sorrows. Um, one of them, and I'm going to run through this quick because we're a little bit late today. Um, the U.S. is seeing its warmest period in recorded history just in case you hadn't noticed that. The latest one, two, three, four, and five-year periods ending in March rank as the warmest in the 122 years of record-keeping for the lower 48. That's according to NOAA. That's the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, which the Trump administration would like to defund so that we don't keep further records on the ongoing warming trends. But if you read the New York Times magazine yesterday, um, you will also know that those warm temperatures uh, mean more mosquitoes, and specifically the ones that carry Z virus, along with dengue fever, chikungunya, and malaria. So the excellent Marin McKenna, who has been a guest on this program many times to talk about antibiotic resistance in the food chain, she wrote this uh, story, and I highly recommend it. So if you didn't get to read it in uh, in the newspaper, look for it online. Um, it was really a fascinating, uh, fascinating story about what climate change means, not just for... Um, you know, humans or, or, you know, whatever, but also what it means for the animal world and how that's going to have an impact on us uh, in the future generations. So um, I'm also waiting for her to get on to ticks uh, because for with a winter as warm as this past one, uh, we will not only have millions of happy mosquitoes, but we'll have millions of happy ticks as well. And they carry their own special freight of Lyme disease, babesiosis or lichiosis, and apparently a brand new disease identified for the place it originated called Powassan virus. Um, Powassan virus, by the way, makes your brain swell up, kind of like meningitis. I've had meningitis, so I can tell you that having your brain swell up doesn't feel good. Um, so anyway, be really careful about ticks this summer. And then the other thing I just wanted to bring up uh, really quickly is a wonderful piece in Mother Jones magazine by my my dear uh, colleague, Tom Philpot. Tom writes that a recent analysis of satellite data by the Environmental Working Group found that around 160,000 North Carolinians, representing more than 60,000 households, live within a half mile of a concentrated area feeding operation or a manure pit. So in, for example, Duplin County alone, more than 12,000 people, a fifth of the county's population, live within sniffing distance of one of these delicious facilities. Um, and meanwhile, the pills, bills, are, according to Tom, bills are pending in the state house and Senate that would severely limit the amount of money that can be awarded in lawsuits by property owners who live near 
agricultural or forestry operations um, where those operations have a negative impact on their lives. So if the bills pass, the people who live near CAFOs will be barred from suing hog growers for making it uh, deeply unpleasant and even dangerous to hang out outside. Dangerous, you say? Why would it be dangerous? It's just a bad smell. Well, there's actually a lot more to it than just a bad smell. In fact, I looked into this quite extensively for my book, which I'm expecting you all to have already ordered your copy or demanded it from your local bookstore, just in case you forgot. It's called What's the Matter with Meat? Um, this, uh, the stuff that comes off of CAFOs, whether they're hogs, uh, poultry or cattle is, uh, something called particulate matter, particulate matter. It's the dust that flies up. Um, either it's blown out from the fans in the houses or it's just in the outdoor, uh, you know, pens for the cattle, but it is loaded with, um, a variety of bacteria, including many drug resistant bacteria, thanks to our use of antibiotics in the food chain. So, uh, and that particulate matter can blow literally thousands and thousands of miles and has in fact been tracked all the way from the United States to as far away as Australia and New Zealand. So um, this is actually a really big deal if you think about it. And if we don't really roll back those antibiotics, um, that's, that could become uh, monstrously uh, serious in terms of public health. So um, Tom didn't matter, mention the particulate matter, which I thought was odd, but um, perhaps he wasn't as <laughs> fascinated by the whole topic as I was. But anyway, it's definitely true that the gases that come off of these emissions are harmful both to the environment and seriously debilitating for humans. So without further ado, let us go to a commercial break. We'll be right back with Jeff Trapetian, uh from Nyman Ranch, and I'll tell you all about him, and then we'll have a fantastic interview, I promise. So stay tuned. Bob's Red Mill has been milling whole grains since 1978. When you mill whole grains, you get all three parts, the bran, the germ, and the endosperm. The bran, or the roughage, makes up about 14% of the whole grain. It's the outer skin of the edible kernel. It contains large amounts of B vitamins, some protein, trace minerals, phytochemicals, but most importantly, dietary fiber. The germ is only about 2.5% of the kernel. It's actually the sprouting section of the seed, what's going to grow into a plant. It's usually separated during milling process because it contains most of the fat and therefore has a shorter shelf life. The endosperm is the main energy storage unit of the seed. That's where the growing plant gets its energy before it can start photosynthesizing and making its own. It makes up a huge portion of the grain, about 83%, and it's the main source that's used for white flour. When you make white flour, you get rid of the germ and the bran and just have the white endosperm left. It contains almost all the carbohydrates. It also contains protein and iron and some of the other B vitamins as well. It's kind of what you classically think of when you're thinking of flour. So all that's there when you're milling with whole grains. But when you mill with whole grains, you also get the bran, which is the kind of roughage and gives that, that's what gives that, that kind of color to it. Also gives you extra fiber that uh, helps you to be regular. And you also get the germ, which adds the fat and the flavor, which we all like from whole grains. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. I love that. Dave Arnold from Cooking Issues, our resident scientist and all-round geek, giving you the skinny on... <laughs> On, on grains. I mean, wow, I thought that would never end. Anyway, this is What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. Um, I have Jeff Tripishan. 
on the phone today. Um, Jeff has 29 years of experience in consumer marketing and branding uh, within the food industry and 17 years in the meat industry. I could go on and on about this, but then we wouldn't get to the interview. Um, Jeff, uh, Jeff, uh, sorry, Trip joined Nyman Ranch in 2006. And has, Hi, Katie. Hi, <laughs> Trip. How are you? Uh, you've been the steward of growing the brand from a regional brand to a national industry leading brand by expanding the distribution channels and geographics. Um, and since 2006, the company has more than tripled in size while also building profitability at an accelerating pace. Uh, Tripp is currently working to complete his master's degree in sustainable agriculture, as if I didn't already feel inadequate enough around you. Now I find that you're actually getting yet another degree. I mean, this is so wrong. It's so unfair, Trip. Well, Katie, I figured that um, when I'm with those farmers and talking, I ought to know something about what they do. Yeah. And so um been attending those classes to um, help them a little bit better. That's so fantastic. I mean, maybe I should do that, too. Yeah. Um, so, Tripp, tell us about we, we, one of the reasons that we decided to have this interview is because Nyman Ranch is going into a new direction, which is very exciting. You're getting mm-hmm. into the charcuterie game. What what prompted that move? Because, I mean, that's kind of a whole different uh, beast than just uh, it, marketing it, meat. Well, yeah, yeah, yes and no. So uh, first, it, charcuterie is, is all meat and yeah. some time and clean air and, and patience. Um, and so, gosh, we figured when we look at um, all of our farmers and what the, the livestock they supply us with, we want to make sure that we use every bit of that animal. Yeah. And so when we have some left over, and as we grow, sometimes we have um, product left over. We said, what can we make? And as you know, charcuterie is very popular today. Yes, I do. We had demand from consumers and all the specialty grocery stores we work with, as well as the the chefs that we work with. They usually make Mm -hmm. their own charcuterie. Mm -hmm. And between those two things, we said we have a little extra product and a lot of demand uh, for charcuterie. And so we, we found a great partner to to work with us on it, and um, so far it's uh, going very well. And it's, is it in stores now? Can people buy it now, or, or is it just a restaurant item? No, it, it's, it's uh, for but we have 23 items that Whoa. we're launching with the charcuterie rollout, and some are for food service, some are for retail, uh-huh. but it just started rolling out really in February. Right. So we have over, oh, about 3,000 specialty and natural grocery stores, and about 5,000 uh, restaurants. And so it takes time to get on menus. It takes time to get into the stores. But, but gosh, we have um, right now about 500 small uh, specialty stores with the product. Awesome. Um, and we think in the next two months, based on commitments, that it'll be pretty much anywhere Nyman can be found today. Um, there'd be a good likelihood the charcuterie line will be there as well. Well, I'm looking forward to trying it. You guys are going to be at the Fancy Food Show in uh, June? You know, we don't do a lot of trade shows. Um, we tend to, and the reason for that is, is as you know, you've been to visit some of those farmers. Yeah. <laughs> we like very predictable growth because we commit to the farmers. We commit to all of their product, all of the livestock. Mm-hmm. And so we don't like peaks and valleys in supply and demand mm-hmm. because that puts pressure on That's a farmer it. or on on our customer. And so any events that are dramatic, like a trade show, 
we try to stay away from. Right, right. it creates those peaks and valleys. I understand that. That makes total sense to me. So now you said you had a partner that you developed this with. That means that you didn't have to build a plant or uh, otherwise, you know, create something uh, out of whole cloth. Right. So how did right. you find your partner? And, and so they were the ones who developed the recipes and helped you build that part exactly. of it? Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the way Nyman's always grown. So we only own one facility. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything else we make, bacon and hot dogs and sausages and hams and all of that is made by what we would characterize as best-in-class cl- best partners. Mm-hmm. They're typically family-owned and operated, uh, old-world, um, whether in recipes, but, you know, kind of that belief system, their values are are kind of that very humble, very traditional. And and we searched a while to find that for charcuterie. Mm. Um, we have some current customers of ours that just make wonderful product. We provide them with raw material, mm-hmm. but they didn't have any extra room in the plant. Uh. And so we, we, it, we took probably six or nine months and found a family that had uh, emigrated from Italy, uh, have set up in the United States, have a, just a world-class operation, brought the recipes with them, uh-huh. and the father and the two sons and some other extended families run it daily. And so when you shake hands with them, uh, it's just like a contract, and we don't have a contract. We just shake hands with people, and, wow. and we're very, very proud of them. Yeah. Well... <laughs> <laughs> They're very, very lucky that you operate that way. So did you have to actually up your supply at all? Once, I mean, once you guys got rolling with the charcuterie, have you brought more farmers in? How many farmers are working for Nyman Ranch now? Okay, Let's so start with we that. we have just over 800 Yeah. Um, in the United States. We only have um, farmers and ranchers in the U.S. They're all the family-run, owned, and operated, no, no absentee owner kind of thing. Right. Um, and, and so to answer your question, we always have a list of farmers that, that we have um, uh, a relationship with uh, that we, we haven't brought them into the program yet because we're not 100% confident that we would be able to shake their hand and buy everything they raise. Right. We only bring them on when we can make that, re- that, that commitment to them. So we have the 800. We have several waiting, dozens waiting. Uh-huh. And that's on beef and pork and lamb, so it's it's all of the three proteins right. that we that we um, work with farmers and ranchers on. And so when we get charcuterie helped us, but the bigger issue was we have uh, some relationships uh, that we've added that aren't as newsworthy, but they're <laughs> just as important to us. We've added three or four new family-run distributors in the United States, uh-huh. and they buy more product. Uh, we just entered, entered into agreements with uh, Chef's Warehouse on food service and Albert's Organics to, to be able to provide product coast-to-coast. Coast. So Great. those two really helped us bring in some more farmers and created that a little extra supply so we could get into charcuterie as well. Right, right. That's awesome. So it's the company is yeah. growing. That's really, it's wonderful. It sure is. Um, you know, when I, uh, a couple of years ago, I was uh, lucky enough to be invited out to the Farmer Appreciation Dinner and I sat next to a farmer and his wife, um, and he told me that he became a Nyman Ranch grower because he could not stand what 
he had been doing, which was an industrialized, more industrialized form of, of uh, hog raising. Right. And that he right. had been so grateful to find your program so that he could treat his animals better. And I wondered if right. that was typical of your farmer. Are you finding that the people who want to come into your program are people who are kind of refugees from industrialized contract farming? You know, that, that is not uh, common. It's, it's not, obviously, it's not uh, um, something that doesn't ever happen. But, mm. and, and here's why. The, the economics of those confinement programs are so capital intensive mm-hmm. between the buildings, the lack of land, yeah. and all of that, that it would be very, very financially difficult for those farmers or companies to switch to the Nyman system. Mm-hmm. And I'll just give you a rough math just to horrify you. Yes, please. So one of those buildings <laughs> has about, depending on their size, between 2,500 and 5,000 animals. Yeah. On that same exact amount of time, and you've seen this out at the Browns farm. Yeah. In the same amount of space, we raise 200 animals. Right. <laughs> and so... If yeah. the farmer was, and, and I'm sure many of the farmers wish they could, but if they were to tear down that building, they would only be able to put a very small fraction of those animals on that space, mm-hmm. and they would still own, owe the bank that money. Yes. And so most of our farmers are diversified farmers. They raise corn and wheat and, and soy and other, and, uh, other um, crops, and they view hogs as a crop. Right. And one that they have to take care of and take care of the land and so on. So what Nyman's done is afford them a chance to be able to do that, um, what they would want to do with their own land. It allows them to diversify, to build the soil health, yeah, to reduce runoff, to do all those things to make their, their family farm much more vibrant. Yeah, And so that's really the majority of Nyman farmers are, all, are doing it the right way. They just never thought they could make any money. <laughs> and what Nyman's always allowed them to do and guaranteed they would do is they would have a, a good livelihood. Yeah. And it's heart, heartbreaking to watch these farmers do all this work and they bring a product to the commodity market and they lose 20 or $30 per hog. Yeah. And that's after months and months worth of work. Yeah. That's, that is not a sustainable farming model. No, in no. that example. You know, it's, uh, it, this has not happened in the hog industry yet, but I'm sure you've been following with great interest as I have the uh, class action suits against um, all of the big poultry producers uh, for price fixing, I, both on the side of the farmers, pr- you know, keeping the prices artificially yeah. low for farmers and keeping the prices artificially high for the grocery, uh, the grocery stores that sell the products. Um, I'm wondering, right. do you have any insight into whether that is something that uh, will come down the pike for the hog industry as well? Or are they, is the National Pork Producers Council keeping that uh, well under wraps? Because <laughs> I'm well, sure they're doing I, the same I can, thing. I can... Um honestly tell you that I'm not on the um, the uh, holiday uh, mailing list for any of those organizations. Um, Nyman is is as much of an outlier from those groups as as you know. Yeah. And and so we we happen to share um, a a animal or a protein. Right. After that there is almost nothing in common and right. the system that we've put together is much more like a cooperative. And yes. so I can only talk intelligently about ours. I mean, our farmers, we, whether we shake their hand or we give them a, 
contract out to five years so that the bank gives them better, you know, better lending rates. Sure. Um, you know, we have a relationship that says, regardless of what happens, we'll never let you lose money. Yeah. Nobody does that. Nobody does now, that. Now, if the, if the market goes crazy, and remember a few years ago when corn doubled in price. Oh, yeah. $9 our farmers a pound. didn't a lose bushel. one penny. Yeah. They and so, you know, you know, what you said, uh, you know, unfortunately does not surprise me. I heard your, your intro on the, the CAFOs, and that's as yeah. terrible and horrific as, as um, you know, price fixing or whatever the other things are. So it's, it's an outlier, and our farmers have safe haven, um, generally speaking, when they're with us. Tripp, do you imagine other, are there other companies that are starting to adopt your model? And, and if that is the case, uh, you know, what, what lessons, I mean, you guys have been very successful in building sure. sustainability with, with, uh, with scale. Basically, um, in fact, yeah. I think that was the subject of a panel that I moderated with you about building yes. scale. Um, and what 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 are the what are the chief uh, challenges to that to being sustainable and building to scale so that you are a nationally or internationally distributed product uh, as Nyman Ranch is? Boy, that's a that's a long. Question. I know it's a huge question. Um, I'm sorry. So I'll, I'll, no, but I'll break I'll break them into pieces. So first, I'll do the positive. There yeah. are a host of smaller, some are young, some have been around for quite a while, smaller um, companies that have done a wonderful job. They, they have a great relationship with their farmers. They, they handle the, they work with, on the land properly. All those things, I, I would be proud to, uh, to shake their hand. Right. Um, then there's everyone else. And, and unfortunately, that's where you start to go, well, there's, there's a dramatic difference. And what I would say to you there is, you know, that the desire to do this is what should be questioned. Is it because it lines up with someone's value system and beliefs, kind of that ethical barometer that right. we use? And if so, then they would follow a similar course, not doesn't have to be the same, similar, and uh, whether that's organics or, or whatever it is. And you would go, gosh, I applaud that effort. Right. The recent entries, that's not the case. The recent entries, you can simply point to a, a business discussion about return on assets or some financial benefit. And so largely they say, gosh, what is the absolute minimum we can do right. to say the words, put it on the label, put it on the menu, and get paid for that? But they don't believe it. They they are fakes. They are people that, uh, and companies that assume the consumer is is not educated. <laughs> well, <laughs> and they take advantage of that. There's an argument to be made for that. <laughs> mm. I yeah. mean, most consumers aren't very well educated for a very good reason, True. which is that the industry doesn't want them to be. And I'd yeah, say, absolutely, right? Yes, they I have mean, to work too hard to find those facts. Yeah, it's it's hard work to decipher those labels. I mean, that's one of the biggest problems I think that um, you know people in the marketing industry have is like, how do you separate you, you know when you really are sort of of the right persuasion. Um, how do you make your verbiage come out uh, more right. sincerely and more real than, you know, the buzzwords that everybody else is throwing around? I mean, it's like, you know, the right. fact that well, natural doesn't mean anything anymore when, you know. Exactly. So. Y- yeah, you, you have to have firm rules. Uh, yeah. Otherwise, you have to police yourself. 
And if you have neither, um, you have a mess. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, the second part of your question, though, was, gosh, um, when you get to some scale or as you start to achieve scale, I mean, what, what drives that? And I think, you know, it, it's not going to be something that is um, – that it requires a great amount of, of intellect. It requires a great amount of, of honesty. Mm-hmm. And I think it requires you to be transparent to the parties, whether yeah. that's a farmer or a customer or a consumer, and, and do what you say and, and mean it. And not just in good times, because that's very easy. Yeah, sure. But in bad times. When things are challenged and no one will, is watching, what do you do? And you have to do the right thing. And we have, you know, I'm, I'm very proud of our oh, top 50 or 60 partners, the customers that represent the vast majority of our business. And when they've been tested and, and you know, you've talked about them over time, mm-hmm. they make the right decision, even if sometimes it's, you know, it's in the news and, and they wish it wasn't. <laughs> um, they still made the right decision. Yeah. And it's the right decision long term. That's why their customers support them. Uh, consumers support them and we do. Yeah. And so I think to get the kind of scale, you can't have the farmers worry that you're going to abandon them if you have a bad day. Yeah. And on the flip side, your customers, if they're going to put your name on the package or put your name on the menu, they have to not worry and trust you that you're going to do what you said. You're never going to embarrass them. Right. You're always going to be honest, whatever that means. But you're, but you're not taking honesty ever off the table. If you do that, you'll be rewarded with more farmers and more customers, and then the challenge is to make sure the two of them are roughly equal as far as volume, yeah. and, and then you can balance the animal and, and everyone can make money. Right, right. It's, it's, it's a tough lesson to absorb. Um, but to go back for a second to what we were talking about, uh, uneducated consumers, I mean, I think um, one of the things that has been most encouraging, having said that, that many people do not know or find it difficult to get the information they need, but many people do know and consumers are demanding, for example, that antibiotics are removed from the food chain. Uh, that seems to be a message that has really penetrated. And even McDonald's and, and investment companies are beginning to force uh, companies like McDonald's that they want to continue to do business with them, they have to take the antibiotics out of the food chain. I was there's been a few really interesting business articles about that. I'm sure you've seen them. Um, but that Absolutely. said, so so I guess what I'm trying to get at is like, um, given that there is this increased awareness of um, the fact that better husbandry equals better outcomes in the long term, in terms of environment, in terms of public health, et cetera. Um, your model, though land intensive, um, do you think that it will sort of start to prevail uh, over the industrial model? Or do you think because of the huge export market we have, for example, in hogs, that it will just, you know, you'll got kind of grow side by side? What do you think will happen there? You know, I, I think the, the latter. I think there'll be a a, a a system with two two compartments, two mm-hmm. pieces. Um, the piece that in all candor, 20, 25 years ago, didn't really exist in any commercially viable way, which is the right. model we have. That's that, right. That just really wasn't there. Now, it was, it was here at the turn of the century, right. 110 years ago, 120 years ago. It was, what, it was what agriculture in America was. Indeed. And then through science and efficiency and all those things, it changed and it became... It came, an, an uglier industry. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think what you'll see is there will be that large need 
to feed a growing planet. Yeah. And there'll be pressure, uh, whether through public companies or private, and simply greed, to say, gosh, um, we can do that and cut corners um, or, or whatever it is they choose to do. Mm-hmm. There'll be the second group driven by a younger consumer today, uh, an educated consumer of any age, but a younger one, uh, almost regardless of education, that is saying, wait a minute, you know, I care about a lot of things that maybe my parents didn't, mm-hmm. or I can afford to care about today and I couldn't maybe in the past. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And however they got there, they're at a moment where they're saying, look, I am going, I care, and I'm going to act like I care. Right. I'm not just going to talk about things I can't control and I'll complain and, and you know throw my hands up in the air. That's not happening now. Now there's, you know, we see it across the landscape. There are, there are um, locations, be it, you know, a, a Whole Foods or a Chipotle or a Panera sure. that 20 some odd years ago, they were nothing anyone was talking about. They barely existed. Yeah. And consumers are looking at what they bring to the table and say, that's consistent with my values. Wall Street's rewarding that and saying, gosh, if, that, if you're going to get a consumer that's going to buy for the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years of their life, and the other stores and restaurants aren't, um, consumers are voting. That consumer with a long lifetime of purchasing mm-hmm. is voting. It is, absolutely. And they're, 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 and they're making it very tangible. I mean, when I go to a restaurant today that serves diamond, I'll have someone that works there say, can you talk to this consumer? This patron is, has a question, and I don't know the answer. And I'll get up and say, you know, and, and I'll say something. I didn't know that. I'm like, no one's going to tell you. You have to seek this out. Yeah. These little companies don't have enough money to advertise in a, in a major way. So you, you have to sift through um, what looks like facts to find real facts. Yeah. Yeah, and that, and that is a challenge. That is absolutely a challenge. Mm-hmm. You may have the best intentions in the world, but without the information available, readily available, it's very hard to make the decisions you need to. Right. But I want to talk a little bit about, because um, this sort of dovetails in with the fact that you guys are now working with the National Young Farmers Coalition. And last week I had yes. Lindsay Shute on the show. Um, as my guest, and we were talking about some right. of the aspects of the farm bill and cuts from the discretionary spending in the USDA that are being contemplated and the impact that will have on young farmers. And she mentioned that you guys are partnering with the Young Farmers uh, Coalition. So tell me a little bit about how you are helping to bring along the next generation of Nyman Ranch farmers, which is clearly what you're doing. Sure. Well, first, um, we're going to have an announcement in, in, uh, in like a month as they work through all the details. But it's very exciting. Um, years ago, when we first got involved, my the management team we have now at Diamond got involved a little over a decade ago. We saw that the average Diamond farmer was was kind of getting up there in age. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and compared to the average age of a farmer in the United States, it was it was older than that. Ooh, and we were worried, so we started an effort years ago to try to make it um, make make the, the kind of a fertile environment, so to speak, for a younger farmer to return to the land. And that's really an economics question. Mm-hmm. It's if you're a 20-something-year-old and you can go to the city and get a job even, and, and get paid whatever, or you can return to the land, what, what amount would you have to make? What life would you be able to carve out for yourself? Yeah. And uh, up until recently, that was a poor answer. And so they didn't do it. And, and farmers became older. Right. Um, 
we put together a program that is is pretty elaborate. It goes from um, guarantee them them that they won't lose money, giving them contracts out to five years so they can go to a banker mm-hmm. and and be able to uh, be uh, borrow money to invest in their land that banker knows that they're going to be able to sell their product and make money. To um, we actually co-sign loans for some of those younger yeah. farmers. We agree to to pay for. They don't owe us any money until we pay them. So they're never really out any money. Mm-hmm. We'll help them. We have a veterinarian on call that doesn't cost them anything. They can call. We have scholarship programs that we hand out every year right. to help facilitate. You know those bills. And there's, oh, there's total, I think, about 15 different things that we put together. We just put videos on our website. It's very interesting. We met with some farmers last year, young ones, and they said, I don't know how to do some of those basic things that my grandfather knew how to do. And so we authored 18 different videos, the how-to, very mundane things, but if you don't know how to do them, very important. Right, right, of course. And we put them on the website so kids can go on there in in a vehicle that they understand, the Internet. (laughs) <laughs> and learn how to do something in a minute or two and be much more productive. Right. So we've done that. Then, of course, Young Farmer Coalition is saying, hey, we have more farmers. We have greater skill. We have things that if we work together would be better than one plus one equals two. Right. And even I understand that math. <laughs> I said, gosh, we should support you in your efforts. We're not going to tell you what to do. Young Farmer Coalition, because they're the expert. So we are going to help fund some of the wonderful programming they already run and just make it more. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. And now they're going to lay out the specifics, because I'm sure I butchered that. But the net of it is we're just going to help them be more successful. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, as you say, I think, I don't know if people realize, I know it's a, it's some, in my circles, it's bandied about quite a bit, but the fact is, is that the average age of the farmer is at one time 60, and now I think it's down to 55 or 50. But the reality is, is if we don't have new farmers, we don't have a secure food supply for the United States. And that's something well, that most people don't really give a lot of thought to. So, Well, I'll scare the heck out of you and give you some numbers that I was given. Okay. <laughs> um, and, and, and so here, here's, what it, here's what they are. Um, in 1930, about 20% of the U.S. population mm-hmm. uh, tied their, their um, livelihood to agriculture. Today, yeah. less than 2%. <gasps> Now we get now from that's that's agriculture in total for just for hog farming since 1970. So 37 years. Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, 47 uh, 40, years. Uh, 47 years. There's been a 92 percent loss of family farming. Yeah, 92. If that was an endangered species, we'd have the government acting on it. Right. There'd be alarms blowing. Yeah. Right. Since it's only people. And their livelihood will do nothing. Yeah. But so there has, and what's happened is that's just big agriculture consolidating. The land didn't go away. Right. It went from a small diversified family farm to a monoculture program with very few employees and an eye towards efficiency. There's nothing wrong with efficiency. Right. But those families were displaced because they couldn't make any money. Yeah. They're doing something else. And that land is now being overused 
because you can't, you know, I learned a lot about soil health, and that's why people have diversified farms to keep making the soil rich. When you make the same thing every day, you deplete the quality of the soil. That's right. And And that's what we have uh, today, unfortunately. And and by the way, that that was part of why we had the Dust Bowl. Was because it mm-hmm. was that was the beginning of monocropping. I think it was possibly yes. in the thirties, yes. right, it's when they were starting to grow common. these great swaths of grains and not changing or rotating the crops. And eventually, yep. with a few years of drought, that was the end of their topsoil. So, and that takes years to grow back. Topsoil apparently grows at like you know a quarter of an inch a year or something like that, and that's with intense right. husbandry. So, but yes. let's let's we don't unfortunately have too much time left. But I want to ask you about. You know what? What is the most? What is the greatest barrier to entry uh, for getting into your model? Is it? I, I asked Lindsay the same thing for the National Young Farmers Coalition. It's like, is it getting money? Yeah. Is it getting land? Is it getting land at an affordable price? Is it buying the infrastructure that you need to run a farm? What's what's or you know I don't know the pr- the price of pork. Now you guys guarantee a price to your farmers, but not everybody does that. Right. So what do you think yeah, is? It's it's uh, if you are a farmer and you're not doing it this way. If if you were sitting there today saying, "What should I raise?" Um, this would be very hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the reason is you have to have everything you said add up to you can support your family on the farm. Yeah. And so if at the beginning you go, "Gosh, the cost of land is ridiculous because they keep." keep turning it into housing complexes or a strip mall mm-hmm. or a highway or something else, a farmer can't compete with those prices mm-hmm. for, for that land. Second is there is uh, a commodity business that says the value of, of that product in a commodity world is below the cost of the, that the farmer can raise it for. Well, they're not they're not foolish. They're going, I'm going to ha- hitch my wagon to something where I'm guaranteed to lose money. So they, they're saying, I can't do that. I have to find a Nyman Ranch or one of those other companies that can help them. Mm-hmm. And we're still very small. I mean, we might be the biggest in our piece of the industry, right. but that's a very, very small um, percent of the total industry. And the challenge for them is if they could get the land find Nyman, find some other company like that, get the product to market, then they have a chance for the for the decent livelihood. Right. There's a skill thing we talked about, which in next generation today, if you went to any ag school in the country, they teach efficient agriculture, big ag. Yeah. Very few of them teach this system. So there what we're having is is a loss of skill. That's the reason we did those videos. We just are launching this summer a mentoring program where some of our older farmers that are, you know, those last few years of farming are either passing it down to their kids, which would be normal. But if they don't have that, they're finding someone that's interested and they're going to teach them over a course of a few years so that the skills get transferred. Yeah. But that's hard. These, These are all you have to truly care and that was back to one of your first questions, the big difference between this and maybe a business just, you know, company just jumping into this, is what's the foundation? What's the, the impetus for this interest? If it's, it concurs with your values, then it's worth the effort. Yeah. If it's just for a buck, there's, there's easier ways to make a buck. <laughs> you know, I worry a little bit about um, 
you know, there's a certain faddishness associated with young farmers now. And um, I don't know if you're finding this, probably not so much out in your neck of the woods, but I get the feeling that, you know, younger people go into farming and they think it's going to be really cool and really fun. And and they're not really on board with the fact that you're up at four in the morning and you work until the sun goes down. (laughs) Like, you know what I mean? And that you don't make a ton of money unless you're really lucky or you work for Nyman Ranch. Or I, I don't know. You know what I mean? I do worry a little yeah. bit about that because, I mean, it's such a hipster thing in a way now. And it's, yes, it's uh, that is troubling to me. I, I feel like there there needs to be more uh, sort of it's sort of like getting civics lessons in high school or something. You, you should be getting <laughs> lessons in like what these professions really mean. Somehow I I feel like there's a big knowledge gap. But um, in our last couple of minutes, I wanted to ask you about consumer education because I've always thought of Nyman Ranch as a leader in sustainability and a leader in educating uh, consumers about what is good food. And so I'm wondering, like, what what would you like to see happen that would help to expand, uh, you know, your bandwidth um, to your message to the vast majority of consumers who we agreed earlier in the program either don't really know or don't have the resources to get the information or don't want to and don't care? What, what would help? Well, the, yeah, I think there's two things that, um, that come to mind that, that would make sense to me. Uh, one is there's a large group, and if you and I had talked 10 years ago, I would not have said that. I would say there's a small group. Um, today there's a large group of, of places that, that younger consumers in general go to. And whether that's the Paneras, the Chipotles, the Whole Foods and the mm-hmm. Sprouts and all of those places or anything like them, that they are popular. They are um, some in some cases, those consumers badge themselves by going there. Yeah. They're saying, look where I go. And and those places are typically quite educated. Their staffs are usually just top notch and they can educate. They can say and, and not in a formal fashion, in a. In a just matter of fact discussion across the table or, or counter, and and so I think that's one that that's happening today. With um, as long as companies like us invest in, in those employees mm-hmm. that can that can communicate that. So and that doesn't cost very much for you mm-hmm. to say the, the truth to a consumer. Uh, the second one is we need to have uh, packaging with integrity. That's mm-hmm. harder. Because right now the rules are loose, yeah, and and, and um, loose or, for a or reason. They require <laughs> that that idea that oh, I'm sure people will make the, a truthful decision, and, and that's obviously not true. Yeah. Um, so that's one that every consumer that buys something at a grocery store, you know, that's a hundred percent of the sales for that company. Yeah. And if it's confusing, if there's too many asterisks behind the claim. Um, then, then we're we're confusing the consumer. But but really, the last one is the consumer, especially this one, has to use common sense. You yeah. can't buy a great product for a very low price in anything you talk about. Thank you. There, there's there's nothing like that. That's right. I if want the best thing for the cheapest price. Right. That if doesn't it's exist really anywhere. cheap. If it's really cheap, it's cheap because somebody is getting beat down yes. or it's poor quality. There's no question about that. Right. And maybe the labels are lying or misleading or someone's telling you a story that's not true. Common sense needs to factor in. Mm. You have to ask yourself, how could that be that price if it does all those things or right. doesn't do all those things? That's right. 
Let me ask you one final question, then we'll wrap it up. What about lobbying? Are you guys lobbying? Do you go to Congress? Do you go talk to, say, uh, say the guys in Iowa, you know, the legislature in Iowa? Do you talk to uh, North Carolina? Do you, I mean, I, I have actually gone to Congress a few times and just asked questions and asked for people to consider coming on to the right. show. But I'm just curious, like they, these congressmen, whether it's Senate or House of Representatives, they are swamped every year by lobbyists from NPC, from the National Cattlemen's right. Beef Association. Right. And those co- organizations are lobbying heavily for things like lax rules in labeling or right. no right. controls over industrial emissions, um, you know, stuff like that. And I'm just wondering why uh, there is such a dearth of lobbying from the other side of the, of the aisle, as it were, in terms of food yeah. production. I, I I think you you already hit on the um, the why the why is that there's very few they're small in number mm-hmm. and they don't have very many nickels in their pocket yeah, companies that, like ours that's and true. so so but that's also a lazy answer and if it, and you, you've made me think and I'm drawing on my whiteboard in my office as I speak to you <laughs> and saying you know we we need to do a better job that's too yes. easy for us to say oh we only have sixty four employees and we're busy. You know well, what? I would do it for free for you guys. Not to do that then. <laughs> Historically, though, we have done it, but it's not in any concerted way. Mm-hmm. Um, we, if the issue is compelling and we think we have an audience, I think in 10 years we've probably gone to D.C. half a dozen times um, and, and tried to make our voice heard. We do tend to do it at the state level if there's some legislation that we think would be um, um, a hazard or harmful to our farmers. We're happy to go with them and and try to add some weight behind that discussion. Um, But it's very much, you know, like trying to hold the tide back when when the other side of that aisle is so large, well-funded, and has people's attention. Yeah. It is. It's a really, you know, I, I feel like nothing will change until the yahoos in our legis in our national legislature are schooled. Because right now they all have their hands out, gimme, 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 because I want to get reelected, and they really don't think about the impact. I mean, North Carolina is a beautiful example. That Tom Philpot story about so many people living near uh, CAFOs and the emissions yeah. from those CAFOs are completely uncontrolled because agriculture yeah. does not have to sub- subscribe to industrial controls over right. pollution, um, and I, I think that's criminal and it's a public health hazard. Yeah. Should be changed. I agree, but I think I think there are a, a couple of things that should uh, that are heartening, mm-hmm. and that is that some of the very large companies are being rewarded, whether it's through you know, them listening to their consumers and customers mm-hmm. or, or through Wall Street, but they're being rewarded for doing some of the things right. Yes. Now it might be slower than we would like, but the fact that it's happening today, and if you look back. You know, some years you'd go, it's not happening at all. Mm-hmm. So there's momentum, for, you know, whether it's like you said, a McDonald's or a Chick-fil-A mm-hmm. or some of the big processors that are saying, you know, we should start to respond to this. These millennials will get older and will dominate as will their generations behind them. And and they are good business people. Yes. And so I, I think they will make change, maybe not a day too soon, <laughs> but I think they'll make change 
because they're going to want to be rewarded for that. And, and, and I don't care how they get there. Right. As long as they get there. I, I agree with you. And on that, we'll wrap it up. I want to thank you so, so much for your time. Um, My pleasure. I could literally do this like on a regular basis. So we'll, we'll have to talk about oh. that off the air. Um, but, and, uh, I di- and I did buy your book. Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Next time I see you, I'm going to sign it for you. And I'll be sending you a pin that you can wear with it whilst you're reading. <laughs> thank Carrie's you wearing much. one right now. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> thank you. Uh, so thanks to uh, Jeff... Tree, trip, tripishin. Thank you. Did I say it right? Finally, tripishin. Trip, yes. To trip, trip, tripishin. Um, from Nyman Ranch. Uh, check out that. I really want to check out those videos. So I urge other people to take a look at your website as well, and um, and also learn a bit more about the charcuterie line because that sounds really exciting and fun. Who doesn't love a good salami, right? Thank you so much. And thank you to my sponsor, Bob's Red Mill. Uh, We love you. And thank you so much for for joining the Heritage Radio Network. And thanks to Dave, my engineer, as always. Thanks for listening, folks. See you next week. Bye-bye. for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.